just inside the main entrance of CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, is a white marble wall with a collection of stars etched into the stone. It is the most sacred space on our compound. Each star memorializes a life lost in the line of duty, a sacrifice to our nation. The inscription above the stars read, in honor of those members of the Central Intelligence Agency who gave their lives in the service of their country. The Book of Honor, on display in front of the memorial wall, contains the names of CIA officers who died in service. Each is written next to a gold leaf star. To protect intelligence sources and methods, some of the names must remain classified, even in death. Once a year, though, every name, even those unlisted, is read out loud in recognition at CIA's annual memorial ceremony. CIA officers are administered the oath of office in front of the memorial wall on their first day. The wall not only reminds these new officers of the inherent risks of our work, but it inspires them to continue to carry CIA's mission forward in honor of those who came before them. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special guest on with me for this podcast. His name is Douglas London, and he spent over 30 years working for the CIA. And he also has a book out uh, called The Recruiter. Uh, Douglas, how's it going? It's going well. How are you doing today? I'm well. Um, so I... I I didn't get through your entire book, but I did get through a, a chunk of it um, on the audio audio version, uh, and it's really fascinating book. It's, in my opinion, it's quite different from other uh, CIA books. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that. But let's start with uh, where you're from and uh, sort of what what led you into the CIA. Sure, um, I was born and raised in the Bronx in New York City. I certainly never expected. To be working for the CIA, I barely knew what the CIA was growing up, uh, going even going to school and going to college. When I got to college, I started getting interested in international politics, international relations. You know, the dynamics of of the Cold War was still ongoing. Uh, the Middle East uh, in the '80s, which uh, this is about the time I was going to college, was was kind of on fire in a lot of places. We'd had the Iranian Revolution, we'd had American hostages. We had uh, bombings in Beirut, so all that very much intrigued me, and I, and I was interested in public service as well. So um, went to college, started to study that, but then found I uh, I wasn't really happy in college. Mm. <laughs> it was a little too static for me, uh, not too interesting. So I thought, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna take some time off from college, and I'm gonna join the Marine Corps. Uh, my family persuaded me uh, not to go into the the regular corps, but to go uh, as a reservist. So I uh, signed up for that. I was 18 years old. I did my 12 weeks at Paris Island and discovered after three months of boot camp, you know, that maybe the Marine Corps is not the best choice for me. Yeah. <laughs> so I went back to school. I was a reservist. I finished up, you know, my six months of active duty and did my reserve work after that. And, and I met uh, a really fascinating guy, uh, a professor at my school. And he was like uh, what I do now. I teach at Georgetown University in Washington as an adjunct. So it's like uh, a practitioner, right? Somebody who comes from the profession they're going to teach about. In this guy's case, he had been a career U.S. diplomat. He'd been a foreign service officer. He'd even uh, been an ambassador a couple of times. 
And he was like the most impressive dude I had ever met. I mean, he just he had this booming voice. He had an amazing presence. He seemed to know everything. And mm-hmm. I wanted to be him when I grew up. So I thought, you know, I want to be just like him. I'm going to be a diplomat. I'm going to take the foreign service exam and do that. Um, well, you know, I, I, I shared my interest with him and he suggested, you know, have you thought about anything else? I, d- I don't think he, he believed I was perhaps polished enough to be a, a U.S. diplomat. Uh, and without me knowing, he uh, passed my name to the CIA because as an ambassador, his last job was at the United Nations. He would pass on uh, observations about various diplomats from, you know, we'd call the criteria countries that he thought, you know, this is somebody who may be worth contact to see if there's anything there. And out of nowhere, I got a call uh, one day from somebody who identified themselves as a, what was it precisely, a federal government representative. Now, who says that kind of thing, right? Federal government representative said, okay. And he said, you know, we're having a job fair. Uh, If you're interested, you know, come down. It was a Jacob Javits building back then. That was a federal center. Okay. And uh, I came down and I wasn't really expecting anything, but uh, there was a group of folks he had invited. Then he met with us individually. He didn't tell us much about what the CIA did, but what he told me was intriguing. And, um, you know, I, I expressed my interest uh, filled out their paperwork, and lo and behold, uh, within about a year after that, I was on board with the agency as a, as a trainee. That's awesome. <clears throat> okay, so let's just uh, circle back real quick. What part of the Bronx are you from? Well, I grew up right by where Yankee Stadium is. I lived on the Grand Concourse, okay, uh, not nice. far from the Fordham Road, sort of between Concourse and Jerome Avenue. And that's where I was as a kid. Uh, we moved then to Kingsbridge Road, which was by another part of the Grand Concourse and, and Fordham Road. Uh, and I lived there until I went to school. And and when I was going to college, I got an apartment by um, by the cemetery, by Mishula Parkway, uh, and lived there oh, until, way. you know, I, I finished school and, and joined the agency. Are you talking about uh, Woodlawn Cemetery? Yeah, Woodlawn Cemetery. Yeah, I exactly. used to have an apartment over there. That's funny. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well might, have been, might, might have been neighbors, but it was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. I'm from Washington Heights originally. but Okay. Cool. Yeah. 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 I loved it. I mean, it was it was quiet. <laughs> and it was about as green as you can get uh, yeah. in the Bronx other than, you know, Botanical Gardens and, and the zoo. So I thought it was true. It was right near uh, Montefiore Hospital. Right. Yeah. And a lot of, uh, well, I, I'm not sure about it at, at, in those days, but. Uh, now, certainly now, uh, it's a lot of like off the boat Irish people, and um, was that right? Yeah, and I remember when uh, when I first was started living over there, I was looking for a liquor store. I, I think it was on Thanksgiving, and um, and I couldn't find it. So I asked uh-huh. this guy. I was like, "Do you know the liquor stores?" And he he responded. I knew he was speaking English, but I had no idea what he was saying. Oh, funny! And and funny. He, it was just a super thick, heavy um, Irish accent. Um, Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Back when I lived there, it was a real mixed neighborhood. I mean, okay. we had all sorts of communities there, you know, Puerto Rican, black, mm. Italian. I mean, it was a real mix. Yeah. Oh, that, that's pretty awesome. Okay. So, yeah. uh, okay. So then you, you get recruited, you, you mm-hmm. go into the, uh, the training pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about what that was like? Yeah. Um, I came right out of college, right? So, uh, back then the agency, focused mostly on um, folks a little bit older for the case officer job, which is what I did, which is basically an agent recruiter, an agent handler. Uh, But they allowed a small pipeline of folks who were younger uh, that they figured, you know, they show potential maybe with some seasoning. 
So the trading pipeline for me was two years, uh, just about, give or take, because I had some extra assignments on various headquarters desks, which actually was terrific because I had a great advantage over a lot of the folks I would go to our trading course with, which we call you know the farm. I can't say where it is, but it's you know it's clearly all over the internet. Uh, and uh, I had the opportunity to read cables, to see operations unfold, get a sense for how things are done, how things are written. And that that really helped me. So uh, I went down with my classmates. We had um, there were there were two particular training courses in the pipeline for case officers, uh, at least back then. One was what we called the field tradecraft course. It's uh, called the operational tradecraft course now, and that's the program where they teach you clandestine operations. Right? They teach case officers the nuts and bolts of agent handling, operating clandestinely, recruiting agents, various communication methods how to you know, identify and avoid surveillance, that kind of thing. Uh, and there's also another course, which um, they had in the day, and they've reconstituted a version of it, which we call the Special Operations Training Course. So the CIA, remember, started out uh, in its roots as the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which was a World War II creation, which operated behind enemy lines against the Germans, the Japanese, uh, you know, running agent networks, conducting sabotage, and those were its roots. And the training we received was very much aligned with that. So it was uh, a period of time, I can't say how long, but it was pretty lengthy back at the time where we learned all sorts of special operational skills. I mean, just familiarization, everything from maritime operations, airborne operations, ground ops. We did a lot of military stuff. We learned about explosives, shot like every kind of weapon you could imagine, uh, learned how to like, you know, dodge terrorist ambushes, all the kind of cool stuff that you, you might think about. And we also did jump out of airplanes at the time. We did airborne certification if we were able to pass a test and we could actually get our airborne wings. So that training takes up the bulk of the year, the, the special ops and the, and the tradecraft stuff. And after that, I was graduated and uh, recruited into what was then called the Near East and South Asia Division, which was everything from uh, how did one particular chief used to refer to it, everything from Marrakesh to Bangladesh. It was both the Arab side of the world and it was the South Asian side of the world. And that's where I began and would do most of my career with the exception of doing a lot of things Russian related, learning Russian language, operating in, you know, the former Soviet republics uh, and spending a lot of time on Russians as well as the whole Middle East and South, South Asia and Southwest Asia being Iran uh, uh, issues in portfolios. So that, that sort of special operations training pipeline, is that a common thing or is that just for a, a particular role that a, 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 an officer would, would fill? So all case officers took it at the time, and I believe they are once again running folks through a shorter version of it. Uh, but it's separate from the pipeline for what's all you can see on the public net is the special activity center. So right. the special activity center in the agency is where we house our paramilitary professionals, um, PMOOs, paramilitary operations officers. And those folks generally come from an ongoing career in the special forces community. They're, you know, Rangers, SEALs, Marines, Green Berets, what have you. Uh, they, you know, don't need that course because obviously they're coming in to do that work and also to teach it. Uh, but they go through the field tradecraft course with the rest of the crew. But case officers uh, who are not in the SAC pipeline 
go through that because, you know, not everybody has military experience. And even if you have military experience, it's actually a great rite of passage uh, that sort of speaks to the CIA's roots. But it does more than that. It's an opportunity for you to bond with your colleagues because they have in the last 30 years or so when they've had some variation, not just put case officers, but put other uh, new agency officers, those on the analytics side, the administrative side, the science and tech side. So they get a taste of it as well. Um, and you also get to establish relationships that you're going to use over the lifetime of your career. I, I, I have dear friends uh, who, I, who I went through that course with who years later still referred to me by my nickname from that course. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> um, and we still meet each other. And, and it kind of helps when there's an issue and you're dealing with somebody senior from the analytic component, a tech component, that you've got an existing relationship. You've already, you've already bonded and connected. And that, that certainly helps, I think, professionally throughout the organization. Okay, so we'll we'll fast forward a little bit, and then uh, I, I want to start a little bit on on some of your your book. So, what did you finish as uh, in the CIA? Like, what was your rank and job? Well, I was department chief. I was in a senior executive position. My last job was as the CIA's counterterrorist chief for South and Southwest Asia. So that's basically all the conflict zones at the time in South Asia, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Uh, includes uh, subcontinent India, includes uh, all the way down to Iran. Okay, okay. So th that's a, a quite a senior role. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and you were you spent thirty four years at the CIA. Yeah, thirty four plus years at the agency. I did about half of that time overseas, about seventeen years in the operational field, and half outside the operational field, uh, which includes headquarters, CIA headquarters. I also was an instructor at the farm, at our training center, where I taught the um, oper operations tradecraft course, and I had some other special responsibilities during some domestic postings. Okay, um, so then uh, another thing that's uh, you know quite interesting, and you touched on it in your book, is you were in the CIA before 9-11 and after, and, and you were able to sort of see some of the changes that uh, took place um, and, and you sort of get into details of that in your book. But um, so let, let's talk about your book. Um, so w one thing that I, I kind of made me chuckle a little bit uh, when I first. So I'm, like I said, I was, I'm listening to the audio version and uh, you refer to uh, espionage as the second oldest profession in the world. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was pretty funny. But. So one thing that makes your book unique, I feel, I mean, I haven't read every single CIA book that's come out, but I've, I've read quite a few. And uh, one thing that makes your book unique, in my opinion, is um, you do highlight the changes that were made. And, and then in, in some instances, you have criticisms of, of some of those changes, um, which I find fascinating. And But you don't do it in like a toxic way, you know, <clears throat> um, so it's very interesting, but let's start with um, you. You talk about like the nuances, of recruiting an agent, and you you make a very clear distinction between a CIA officer and an agent. Can we talk about that? Yeah, um, you know, a CIA agent is somebody that we recruit as a penetration of the target 
organization we want answers about. So if the CIA is trying to collect intelligence on, you know, Vladimir Putin's plans for Ukraine, uh, China's President Xi's plans for Taiwan, we want somebody in their inner circle, right? We want somebody who could provide strategic intelligence about an adversary's plans, their intentions, and their capabilities. So we're recruiting, you know, uh, intelligence officers. We're recruiting military officers, scientists, all all those people who would be able to provide the answers to the questions that U.S. decision makers and policymakers need to know about what our adversaries can and plan do against us. Those people are agents. They're not Americans. They're not uh, certainly not staff officers of CIA. They are staff officers generally of the target group. They could be terrorists in a terrorist organization. An officer uh, is the CIA staffer. That's the person that the CIA hires, an American, cleared American, to perform whatever occupational specialty they have, whether it's as a case officer like I was, or some of the other professions, variously analyst or targeting officers or program managers, staff operations officers, whatever their occupational disposition is, they're called officers. So, so that's, that's the distinction between agents and, and officers. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's a popular misconception. And, it is, yeah, um, and that's probably due to like Hollywood and and movies and stuff like that. Um, yeah, absolutely. But you know, think about it. Even the, the FBI, they refer to their their people as special agents. Mm-hmm. You know, Secret Service, there's they're agents. But um, in the CIA, we're officers, and uh, the officers who recruit agents and handle agents who are our foreign targets, they're case officers. Right. Right. Okay, so you also um, you speak a little bit about your time uh, as an instructor uh, at the uh, the training pipeline, um, and then there was uh, one instance where you were uh, helping to train uh, a, a young uh, per, uh, prospective officer, and um, you went to eat with her, and. Uh, you have perhaps you had some reservations about, uh, you know, what you've seen from her or or some things that you, you wanted to sort of look at further. And then you asked her to go steal six uh, egg rolls from the buffet line. Um, yeah, yeah. And then she countered by saying that she could just slip the person ten dollars um, and, and get the egg rolls. Right. But uh, so let's say in like a, a real world, real world situation. uh wouldn't even if she decided to just pay and get the egg rolls, wouldn't that be sufficient? Or was this particular situation just a, more about you teaching her a lesson? The the objective was stretching her comfort zone. Mm. So one of the criticisms I have of the CIA, and I think they're trying to do better from what I could see um, on the outside, but still with some some interaction with the organization, is uh, their recruitment. Right? Um, I was kind of an exception in my day, because I wasn't the strongest academically. <laughs> I didn't come from a particularly suburban background. I had never been overseas in my life, and I could barely speak English as as my native language. But I knew the street. I knew people. I knew how to deal with dicey situations. I knew how to deal with ambiguity. Uh, I knew how to pretend to role play. Things I had to do just, you know, basically growing up in New York City, right. <laughs> you know, just to, you know, I mean, to, to, to survive, right? The agency, um, with its good intentions, 
wants people that have great academic credentials, sort of fit the same profile of people who maybe they've traveled overseas, they've studied overseas, maybe they've got a language. But, you know, by and large, these are people, if they come from really good schools and these kind of backgrounds, are probably people that came from somewhat privileged backgrounds. They're very often folks who maybe you can even suggest in some cases, and I don't want to be disparaging here, might have had a very entitled upbringing, okay? They may not have really had to deal with adversity, uh, challenges that were you know, perhaps even existential to them because they had somebody bailing them out, they had somebody fixing things for them. But you know when you're a case officer, you're the fixer and you've got no lifeline. It's, it's not like even in the military where my, my military colleagues, you know, they're operating in groups and teams, even special forces, they're operating in teams. Case officers operate as singletons. They're out there, they're on their own, uh, they've got no cavalry usually, and they've got to think on their feet. So this young lady was very smart, very educated, very sophisticated, but probably had never had to suffer a real hardship in her entire life. I wanted her to have to feel what it was like to do something, one, that was wrong because there was signs in this restaurant because it was a big buffet. Don't no, don't take anything home with you. You know, you'll be thrown out. We'll never, we'll never let you back in. I mean, they weren't subtle about it. It was a mom and pop place. It was wonderful. I loved it. Uh, but they weren't uh, subtle about it because they were relatively cheap. They gave you tons of food. They didn't want you to take any home with you. And the idea of doing this to her was just abhorrent. And I knew that it was. And that's exactly why I wanted to do it. Because, you know, truth be told, what does a case officer do? Case officer breaks the law. A case officer is spying. A case officer is stealing, stealing secrets, sometimes maybe breaking into places. So if you've never done that, you, you need to have a little bit of a taste of it. And I just wanted to give her that opportunity. So you're right, John. I mean, the idea that she can come up with another solution would serve her well in the field, but she's going to have to cross lines. She's going to have to do things that are uncomfortable. And she's actually going to work with people who might be a little unsavory as I played in the role with her as the person she was trying to recruit. So I wanted her to have that experience and um, goodness knows she remembered it for years and years I've heard. So uh, hopefully it, it helped her. Yeah, that, that's such a fascinating point. Um, a, a friend of mine, he's from the Bronx um, and he was a SEAL for a couple of years, but then Inside being a SEAL, he worked in some sort of special uh, intelligence role um, for a few years, and one of the, and that included meeting with locals and and building rapport and things like that. And and one of the things he told me was um, that being from the Bronx and and being from a rough neighborhood and and having to learn uh, you know survival instinct and and develop those instincts and and sort of situational awareness and. All these things that you kind of learn if you if you come from a sort of rough area uh, really helped him professionally when he was working for the government in that role. And and I said something I thought was fascinating. And then when I read uh, this segment in your book, it it clicked right away. Um, so really fascinating stuff. Um, okay, so you also write about some of the changes made. Um, at, at the agency. And, and one thing, uh, you know, I talked to a lot of guys from special operations and some of them were in before 9-11 and, and remained in the service after. And one of the things I always ask about is 
you know, what changes were made at the organization that you come from and uh, were they good, were they bad, et cetera. Um, but, and this is something that you, you speak about uh, somewhat extensively in your book. Um, yeah, I, you know, my, my book, my story is, uh, in my mind, it's, it's a love story with espionage. And mm-hmm. I, I'm always happy to talk about espionage. Um, but it's, it's, it's a love letter that, that talks about things as they should be and, and, and maybe as they need to be again, somewhat with, with, with some improvements. Mm-hmm. The, the agency was founded, you know, in 1947 with three principal missions, right? It was collect foreign intelligence, analyze that intelligence and conduct, uh, covert actions at, at the president's direction. And it was, uh, it was a balance in which the predominant, pursuit the agency had was foreign intelligence collection uh, with obviously analysis of that and covert operations because by definition a covert operation means the U.S. government wants to be able to deny it. It's like mission impossible, right? We deny knowing anything about this. You know, if you're going to overthrow a regime, blow something up, you know, kill somebody, uh, you know, you generally want to do that deniably unless you're waging a war, unless you're like, you know, as we did going into Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, but the idea of covert action should be something you do sparingly, because as we've seen over the last century, at least, regime change, which is often a goal of covert action, has not gone well, not just uh, for the United States, but for other countries, you know, Great Britain, other France, whatever, other countries that have tried it. It sometimes works out a lot worse. I mean, look at look at Putin in, in Ukraine. That was hardly covert action, but his intention was regime change in Ukraine. And that ain't going so well for him. So what I saw in my first 17 years, if you would, which was up until 9-11, I was in the the era of the Cold War uh, and that transition point, right? I came in the 80s where it was still the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact, you know, Mao Zedong, all that kind of good stuff. And it was it was, you know, the U.S. versus versus the communist countries in, in that Cold War period with the ever present possibility of nuclear annihilation. Right. That was that was always the worry in the Cold War days. And so what the CIA did predominantly was spy, uh, steal secrets, find out what our adversaries were up to, how they would do it and try to disrupt them if we could by having better capabilities. You know, one of the most famous CIA cases is uh, an agent called. Adolf Tokachev. He was a Russian uh, technical uh, engineer in their aviation programs. He basically allowed us to have the advantage over anything the Russians would put in the air over their radar systems if we had to attack them. So we had the qualitative advantage. 9-11 comes and uh, for reasons right and not so right, uh, there's a demand for for accountability of what went wrong, the intelligence failure that allowed al-Qaeda to to enact its attacks. And most of the blame pointed out to CIA. Uh, Some of that's because the CIA is a secret organization. We don't have a lobby. We don't have open hearings. FBI had a lot of open hearings. DOD had open hearings, all sorts of other departments. They've got their lobbies, too, because these are massive organizations. The CIA, which your listeners may not really appreciate, is a relatively small organization to other U.S. government agencies. And the clandestine service, really small, right? So the agency did a lot of things right, but they also did some things wrong in 9-11, which was a, really a lack of transparency. The agency saw what was coming down the road. There's, you know, a redacted, uh, unclassified or declassified President's Daily Brief that talks about the agency projecting or predicting 
that a huge homeland attack was coming. Um, and we just didn't share everything we knew about some of the folks we were tracking who turned out to be involved in that very operation. That was wrong, right? But uh, come 2002, 2003, folks want the agency's head. There's actually an existential threat to the agency that they're going to be absorbed by the military. Donald Rumsfeld, who was Secretary of Defense, was never a fan of the agency, <laughs> less so after 9-11, and the agency was able to deploy boots on the ground in Afghanistan weeks before he could. Um, so agency leadership at the time thought, okay, how do we protect ourselves? What do we have to offer to get our most important protector, who would be the president of the United States? And that's the unique covert action authorities. The agency is the only U.S. agency that conducts covert action. Legally, it doesn't have to be, but practically it is by based of its structure, organization, and, and our need to protect the military from, you know, in terms of Vienna Convention considerations and such like that. It's the agency that gets to do that kind of stuff and, and always has. So the agency basically presented options to the president to deal with some of his biggest problems that came out of 9-11. One, make sure another 9-11 doesn't happen again real soon. Do something about preempting terrorist attacks. Do something about all these al-Qaeda guys who've now morphed and moved from Afghanistan to Pakistan, a sovereign country, which was not in the position to do much about them, um, and operate in Afghanistan as well in a way to go after terrorists and keep the government at least upright from a threat from the, the Taliban. And lastly, do something with all those detainees who the DOD couldn't take because they weren't legally prisoners of war, so they couldn't hold them. The FBI didn't want because they couldn't prosecute them. They didn't have credible, legitimate cases. But neither did the United States government want to turn out these folks, many of whom were parts of the 9-11 operation, but against whom we had no legal case. Enter the CIA. And the CIA, because it could conduct covert action, developed um, just an exceptional targeting program using technical means to deliver, and I'm using these words deliberately because of my legal obligations <laughs> to the CIA, uh, but to deliver kinetic solutions to some of the people we wanted removed from the battlefield, to render, detain, and interrogate some of those uh, suspects, some of those folks captured who neither DOD or FBI could take, and, and work with uh, ind indigenous groups to root out terrorists and, um, and in Afghanistan, ideally try to stabilize the government from a security posture. The problem wasn't that CIA did all of this. There were parts of that that made sense, parts of it that didn't. I think certainly the enhanced interrogation was just a crime that countered and compromised the CIA's values. But some of these components in and of themselves had utility, but unfortunately the CIA reversed its balance and became really a primarily covert action organization. And by doing so, there were some consequences for foreign intelligence collection. We were spending a lot more time finding, fixing, and finishing terrorists than we were investing in foreign intelligence, stealing secrets from the Russians, the Chinese, or countering some of their very aggressive intelligence operations. And we sort of saw that come home to roost with Russian meddling in the elections, all the disinformation campaigns, uh, the cyber operations taking 
U.S. companies, hospitals, businesses offline, all conducted by foreign intelligence services. Um, and to an extent, because CIA was distracted elsewhere. So my bottom line is that the CIA needed to revisit and reform some of its um, strategies applied during the 20 years fighting the war on terrorism and kind of get back to being able to be a first-rate premier intelligence service, particularly as we entered this era of great power competition, which looks a lot like the world I came on board in, where we're dealing with the Russians, we're dealing with the Chinese, we're dealing with regional powers like Iran and North Korea, who have the ability to inflict catastrophic damage, uh, as well as all these other various regional powers. I think to its credit, the agency has turned around uh, significantly to do just that, where we still are dealing with counterterrorism and maybe too little, <laughs> maybe it's a bit of an extreme reaction, but we've really focused ourselves first and foremost on China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and doing so by stealing secrets, by, by deterring and preempting, but still using covert action as a means in moderation where it makes sense and we could achieve our goals at the end of the day by, by what capabilities we have to render. So, so that sort of is sort of the big broad brush of my criticism. It's not the agency in and of itself. I love the agency. I love being part of it. But I did take to task some of its leaders who opportunistically sort of served their own professional needs to advance themselves by really weighing the organization far heavily towards covert action, uh, towards counterterrorist-related covert action at the expense of other things we should have been doing. Yeah, I think that's one thing that really makes your book interesting is is you speak about these things um, in a critical way, but it's not like toxic or, you know, super negative. It's it's just like an, a, a, an, a critical look at some of these these uh, different issues um, that that you saw and changes uh, that happened after nine eleven, uh, which which I honestly appreciate because um, I feel like most uh, CIA books are not sort of looking at the the organization in that way, at least not in the book. But um, it, it's really something I found fascinating about your book. Um, so. Um, there's a part in the book where you talk about these uh, the different uh, ints, um, human, SIGINT, mm -hmm. um, and then you also spoke about OSINT, uh, which is something that uh, I'm very interested in, uh, as I I utilize OSINT uh, for uh, articles and research on uh, China and Russia. Um, so uh, how important uh, do you think OSINT is to the overall picture of, uh, you know, understanding what's what's happening in the world? You know, OSINT's an incredibly valuable resource these days, and the CIA certainly uses it as well. There's the open source enterprise, which is uh, within the CIA, which is uh, these are cleared people, cleared analysts who are integrated with the rest of the agency and the rest of the community. I think when it comes to OSINT, and, and I've read Amy Ziegart's book on spies, lies, and algorithms and some of her articles, and she's a very passionate proponent of OSINT, as am I. But I think what uh, Ms. Ziegert gets wrong is 
looking at OSINT as one, the captive of the classified agencies who don't want it, which is not true, uh, and that it can operate in a vacuum by itself. So what I what I mean by this is there's six cents, right? There's there's OSINT, open source. There's GeoInt, which is kind of the skill of putting people on an X for better or worse. There's human intelligence. That's that's spying. There's SIGINT. That's all the different intercepts back in the old days of radio communications, and now it's telephones and, and email and, and everything that goes along with it. There's IMINT. That's imagery. That's what we think about that the satellites do, that drones do. They capture still images and forward motion video. And there's Mazin. Mazin is measures and signatures. And what that is, just real quick for your audience, is, you know, you think about how you see discussions about samples suggested that a certain country was trying to enrich uranium or had plutonium or was developing chemical weapons or narcotics facilitation or drug uh, factories or explosive factories. Those are environmental samples that are essentially stolen because usually in a hostile territory, uh, water, air, soil, that might be revealing. That's Measure 6 signature. So the six cents, particularly post 9-11, uh, operate best as a corporate enterprise. Now, I'm not going to tell you that all 18 current U.S. intelligence agencies are not competing for resources and influence. They do, but they often enable one another. So, you know, drones that are flying around in the, in, in the air, how do they find people? It's not like they just like push a button and go, okay, here's this terrorist or here's this Russian troop formation. They're usually facilitated by human intelligence, by reports that suggest a location, provide a description, maybe provide a, a phone number, some physical characteristics and such like that. Um, UMIT is also often the back door for signals intelligence because you don't just like look at a computer network and go bing and all of a sudden you're able to, to steal things because you've got super duper cyber breaking and, and crypto breaking capabilities. The best way to do it is have somebody on the inside who usually gets you a, a back door. So the ints all work better, like uh, we discovered in the military, our military works better in combined arms. That is the U.S. military strategy. And that of most Western nations is, you know, how to incorporate logistics and air support and all the different domains in which we operate militarily by having them synergize and work together. The same dynamic applies to intelligence. Open source is amazing, particularly when you pair it with artificial intelligence, the ability to process data, to identify patterns, to, to look for, for repeats or, or, or those, those hidden jewels down there is absolutely phenomenal. But Ms. Ziegert's book contends that we want to get away from the rest of the ends. We want to get away from the community because they're stifling initiative, they're stifling innovation. And we're going to have this, this miraculous OSINT new agency operate by itself. And we're even going to include uncleared people. Well, that's a gift to our adversaries who are going to think, how are we going to influence U.S. decision making? Let's go look at these uncleared people who probably don't even need security clearances, according to this um, a structure that's being proposed, direct people into it, you know, fiddle with their analysis and also get an understanding of what secrets the United States already has. Because when you are trying to answer questions, it reflects what you don't know, which also tells an adversary what you do know. So I think that the proposal to have sort of an independent OSINT agency 
is dangerous from a counterintelligence point of view. Um, and it's a good intention gone wrong. What I do think is there has to be continued investment and significant increased investment of how all the U.S. intelligence agencies collect, integrate, and exploit open source, which is just a wealth of information. Look at um, that NGO Bellingcat and their yeah. ability to identify the trails of all these various, mostly GRU, mm-hmm. 29155 folks who have conducted sabotage and assassinations all through you know open source information. It's amazing. And I would tell you as a spy, I used every advantage I could get, which included open source. I used open source to get indirect assessment on people I wanted to recruit. We use open source to identify fingerprints, footprints, and trails that would lead to some of our targets. I will assure you that we're making great use of open source and we should do a lot more of it. I just fear that without a real understanding of how intelligence works, we won't use it effectively in the United States government and we might open the door to some real counterintelligence risks. Before we continue, I'd like to talk to you about this week's sponsor, Four Patriots. Drought, inflation, and even new policies are pushing America's food supply near its breaking point. That's why survival food is more important than ever. Create your own stockpile of the best-selling Four Patriot survival food kits. It's not ordinary food. We're talking good for 25 years survival food. Handpicked right in a family-owned facility in the USA, and giving jobs to over 200 Americans. The kits are compact, sturdy, water-resistant, and stack easily. They have different delicious breakfast, lunch, and dinners. You can make these meals in less than 20 minutes. Just add boiling water, simmer, and serve. And right now, you can go to 4 and use the code RECON to get 10% off your first purchase on anything in the store, including this three-month survival kit. You'll get their famous guarantee for an entire year after your order, plus free shipping on orders over $97. They're called Four Patriots because a portion of every sale is donated to charities who support our veterans and their families. Just go to fourpatriots.com and use the code RECON to get 10% off. That's fourpatriots.com. Use the code RECON. Start building your own stockpile today. Yeah, I, I think you... Uh you make a great point. Like the the OSINT capabilities should, you know, from a security standpoint, if the government is doing it, it should be done, you know, from within the secure sort of bubble of, uh, you know, whatever agency is is utilizing it. Um, but uh, you know, the the OSINT stuff is is very interesting. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned Bellingcat, and they've done some remarkable things in, in terms oh, of have? tracking. Um, you know, uh, essentially a Russian intelligence service uh, tracking them when they were conducting assassinations uh, overseas, uh, you know, outside of Russia and uh, the downing of a, a civilian aircraft um, in Ukraine. I mean, it's it's really incredible stuff. And, um, you know, I've been taking an OSINT course and uh, I have a, a company that I co-founded with a uh, my business partner. His name is Justin Charters, and he's been an OSINT analyst for a couple of years now, uh, working in, in sort of different roles. And um, you know, we we publish articles uh, covering you know issues related to China and Russia. And uh, one of the things we emphasize is utilizing OSINT to sort of add a, a unique bit of information uh, in, in what we're publishing and um, 
you know, learning OSINT uh, has, for me, from from my perspective of uh, wanting to publish good information that the the public can read and and try and help uh, educate people on, on some of these topics is really phenomenal. Like, to, you know, to be able to search, uh, you know, like or, uh, search organizations like. Um, the Wagner Group, uh, for example, uh, and just kind of see what they're doing on the open web and then, you know, be able to screenshot that and, and show people like, hey, this is what Wagner Group is doing when they're trying to recruit Americans, for example. Um, or, or this is what uh, this Chinese company that has ties to the Chinese uh, security services is doing, at, you know, at U.S. ports, for example. So uh, it's really fascinating stuff. No, it's it's absolutely essential. Just think about the supercharging of open source information when it's paired up with classified information, when it's passed right. up with, you know, what's really going on uh, behind Wagner? Why were they setting these guys or doing this, what their plans were with signals intelligence and such like that? Also, you know, we've got to be aware of how all these different governments are using open source to message, to manipulate, to publish this information, the prevalence of deep fakes now that we've seen, the the deep fake at the beginning of the Russian invasion where they actually had Zelensky, images of Zelensky telling his soldiers to put down their arms, mm-hmm. a deep fake that had President Trump when he was in office telling the people of Brussels to uh, to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement, which was actually done by a, a Belgian political party. So, you know, I, I think we absolutely have to use it, but I think like any int it it works best when integrated and combined with others. Right. And and I think that will continue to be the direction ideally the US government takes. Yeah, so like just uh conducting sort of OSIN investigations with my team, uh, you know, we're looking at different things. But uh, I we can sort of see where the OSINT ends and it's like if you wanted to go further you would need like actual yeah. intelligence and, and we can kind of see what the limitations are but it's very fascinating stuff um, okay so let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine um, mm-hmm. uh, you know you, you were speaking about the, the sort of pivot from countering terrorism to you know looking at Russia and China and um you know, one thing I thought that was pretty interesting, uh, just before the Russians invaded, the U.S. government was saying Russia's going to invade. And I, I feel that kind of threw them off a little bit and perhaps pushed back their invasion time. Um, and, and I thought that really just sort of showed the, the capability of, of the U.S. to, to have information and, and, and utilize that to, to throw off, you know, our adversaries. Yeah, I, I think it was uh, an amazing tool, and I think it's part of the continued weaponization of intelligence. I don't mean that as necessarily a negative thing entirely, but how intelligence is being used as a national instrument of power. Uh, it certainly reflects the U.S. intelligence capabilities because the intelligence was, we'd call it exquisite, because it was spot on as far as the actual war plans and where Putin was going to attack, specifically that airfield with special forces and where Russian troops would be coming and in what numbers. I mean, that was just absolutely marvelous. But I think at the time, the use of that intelligence by declassifying it was probably less about preempting Putin and more about galvanizing support and solidarity for Ukraine. 
I think when President uh, Biden sent William Burns, CIA director, to uh, to uh, Russia in November of 2021 to basically present the case to Putin that, hey, we know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. There's going to be catastrophic consequences. Don't do it. Uh, he didn't meet with Putin. He spoke on the phone with Putin. He met with Nikolai Petrushev in person, who's uh, the president of Russia's National Security Council and essentially Putin's number two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Russians just scoffed. And they scoffed because they didn't care what we knew. Uh, they believed that in, as we had in the past, we would back off, that we would make these loud threats and we'd do nothing. But what that intelligence did was it influenced opinions. It influenced opinions, particularly in Germany, which we needed, and Poland, which we needed in order to support Ukraine. And pressure was applied on those governments because, you know, the United States can't legally put out propaganda if it's false that might come back into U.S. media. And these days with online, everything comes back. I mean, you know, you can put anything anywhere and it's going to show up somewhere on a U.S. server. So what's the alternative? Well, put out the truth. And the truth was very damning as far as what the Russians were doing and going to do, and particularly some of these false flag scenarios where we explained how the Russians were going to claim that Ukrainians started it, or they were building some bioweapon or nuclear weapon or chemical weapon or what have you. And all that turned out to be exactly what the Russians were trying to do. So that intelligence did so much, I think, to galvanize support among the liberal democracies, particularly among the NATO countries, that accounted for the tremendous response and the tremendous support that was provided to Ukraine soon after the Russians came across uh, the border and launched their campaign and accounted for the Ukrainians' ability to resist. Yeah, and, and I think um, uh, it, it's, it's so interesting because for years, uh, several U.S. presidents tried to get NATO members to increase their defense spending and, and uh, things like that, and, and they were unsuccessful. Um, sort of more notably, Trump was doing it um, you know, probably in a, a more of a kind of toxic way, I would say. Um, but um, and and they failed at doing that. But uh, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine really sort of galvanized the West and and NATO. And I think Putin, uh, I think he miscalculated. And um, yeah, I'd say. <laughs> he, yeah, and he he sort of woke NATO up. I mean, a cup. I think a couple of months before the invasion. Uh, the president of France, uh, Emmanuel Macron, he said NATO was brain dead. I, I think he tweeted that or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and things have really changed in a way that I think the Russians did not predict. No, certainly he did more to bring home everything he claimed to be trying to avert, which was a stronger NATO. Uh, it's now going to be bigger. You know, Finland and Sweden are going to be joining. You've got Germany, who is spending nothing, is now pledged to spend $100 billion plus uh, which for them is a huge amount of money on uh, restoring their their defenses. So uh, he's got more U.S. and NATO forces on his borders than he had before the conflict began. So, yeah, I mean, he's done more to strengthen NATO uh, than anything certainly the United States could have done to encourage its its increasing presence and, and robust <laughs> capacity to defend itself. Uh, so you know, with this war, there's a, a ton of uh, 
you know, everyone has an opinion. Uh, some of that is just the the nature of the internet. Like whatever the 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 hot story is for the day, people are just talking about it on Twitter and, and all these places. Um, but in terms of like, you know, your pro- sort of professional view on this, uh, you know, what do you think may end up happening? Um, what, what do you think the chances are of a direct confrontation between NATO and Russia? So in the past couple of weeks, the uh, United States Intel community put out its 2023 annual threat assessment. And uh, every year since, I think, 2006, with the exception of 2020, uh, the community has put out an unclassified version of where it thinks United States national security threats, interests, uh, concerns lie around the world. And my former colleagues uh, basically said, and I agree, the outcome in Ukraine is is somewhat unpredictable for a number of reasons. As you said, Putin's calculus was not really uh, effective in determining why and when he should launch his invasion in Ukraine. It was based on false assumptions about Ukrainians' lack of willingness to fight, greeting them as uh, liberators, the capabilities of his own forces, and that the West would sit idly by and do nothing. And all that proved to be very, very wrong. So that assessment suggests that Putin is not eager to take on NATO, is not eager to get into a certainly a conventional war that he cannot win. You know, already the Brits believe the Russians have 97 percent of everything they've got militarily, 97 percent in Ukraine. The U.S. estimate, much more conservative, says 80 percent. So who do they have standing guard on the border? I mean, what are they going to use to attack anybody else at, at this point? Uh, so I, I agree that uh, Putin's not eager to take on the West and does not want to escalate, but he's also becoming increasingly desperate over what's going on in Ukraine. He's losing that war, and losing that war includes a stalemate, even though there's a lot of talk of him believing via attrition he'll prevail, uh, Ukraine will weaken, Western resolve will weaken. Well, attrition means that Lots of dead Russians are coming home. He's spending an incredible amount of Russia's resources on the war. Uh, he's not attending to his own economy, which even though the Russians have done a really good job of like, you know, moving around the the, 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 dance, the chairs on the dance floor to make it look like they're okay, they're struggling and their struggles are going to continue economically as they're isolated from the international market, even if they're selling their oil to China and India and and what have you. So I don't really think time is on his side as much as some of the pundits suggest it is. Mm -hmm. But I also see the United States has been real, oh, how to say, deliberate in terms of increasing Ukraine's capacity to inflict greater pain on Russia. And I think that's what Russia needs. I don't think Putin is going to negotiate his way out unless the pain becomes intolerable. And that's not going to happen anytime soon. And even though we're going to give them tanks and, and the Germans are giving them leopards, it's a little bit, you know, too little, uh, not soon enough, not with a sense of urgency. So I see sort of this slower road towards Ukrainian victory than, um, you know, the kind of high impact, real pain that Putin has to suffer to bring him to the table. I, my own thoughts is, 
the most likely way out is more of a ceasefire than a peace resolution. You're never going to trust Putin. Whatever he gets, any sort of cessation of hostilities, he's going to try to use that to regroup and try again. So I don't see uh, really a long-term solution. I see some form of support to Ukraine that deters Russia after a cessation of hostilities from trying again because of consequences. Putin understands consequences. He does. He's not reckless. He's not crazy. He made his decisions which were wrong because he had bad intel. And he had bad intel based on a system he created where no one's going to tell him the truth. Who's going to tell the emperor he's wearing no clothes? Right. So that's really how he got himself into the situation. I don't see that changing anytime soon. But I think that the United States and its, its allies need to really allow Ukraine to have the, the most sophisticated, longer-range weapons that it needs to really inflict the kind of pain on, on Putin that is required to get him to seriously consider stopping this war. Yeah, you brought up a great point um, when you mentioned that uh, some people are are assessing that you know he he wants this war to go on uh, you know for a long time, and I, I always found that kind of strange because I, I thought like you know can they even af- can they afford that um, uh, you know they are they've done a bunch of things to make it seem like these sanctions aren't affecting them, but they are. Um, uh, they sort of utterly, artificially inflated the ruble uh, to try and make it look like it's, you know, uh, more valuable than it is. Uh, but but it, it's certainly a, a huge mistake uh, on his part. And, and, you know, like you mentioned, a, a bunch of Russians are dying Um uh, they've galvanized NATO. They, you know, all the the former, some of the former Soviet states, are firmly on the side of Ukraine and, and um, supporting them with as much as they can. Um, so uh, I'm sort of, and a lot of people are obviously just sort of waiting to see how this plays out. Um, okay, so then uh, let's switch and talk about China a bit. Um, so obviously China is, has risen in the last several decades. Uh, you know they are a, a major power in the world uh, economically. They are building up their military, um, and and they are making moves around the world to to uh, you know be viewed as someone who is a major player in world affairs. Um, so let's let's first start with Taiwan. Um, it, I, I think it was at the end of last year, uh, the administration uh, banned certain, uh, they placed uh, c- controls on certain uh, parts of the, the chip making industry uh, that really hurt the, the Chinese uh, sort of uh, technology sector. And, and that also affects you know their their ability to create certain equipment for the military that's necessary. So, what do you think the chances are that they would invade Taiwan? You know, Director Burns and the United States government, Lincoln, they've all gone on record to say, uh, based on our intelligence, we believe that President Xi has said we we will China uh, reunite with Taiwan one way or another 
by 2027, including the use of force. And certainly China continues to expand its, its military capabilities to be able to use force if it needs to as its means of securing reunification with, with Taiwan. We've also heard uh, Director Burns and Secretary Blinken talk about the lessons that China is absorbing from Ukraine. And that could go both ways. That could be, you know, this didn't work out too well for Russia. Maybe we don't want to do it in, in Taiwan. Or here's what the Russians did well, wrong. And if we do something different, maybe we'll be better off. But I think the messaging coming from the U.S. intel community is China doesn't want to fight a war with United States, but it's prepared to do so. And it's it's enabling itself to do so if it either has no choice or in its own mind, it's forced into it. So I, I, from what I've seen and from what I've seen in the, at least the unclassified world, you know, China wants to give itself the capability, but it would be one costly war. And costly in the sense of, even if they prevail militarily, China has, what, 1.4 billion people? And after the Tiananmen Square crisis of 1989, it sort of adopted a strategy that we're going to aim to give the people a lifestyle so comfortable that we're going to have, if you would, a social contract. We'll let you have nice places to live, good jobs, nice cars, you know, be able to put your kids through school, through university, stay out of politics. But that means a continued growth rate, which is far in excess of anything we think is even uh, – possible in the United States. China is looking for 8, 9, 10% growth rates in order to do that every single year. And they've really struggled in the past couple of years with the pandemic and, and the supply chain problems. And, and now they're struggling still with some of these U.S. actions on chips and semiconductors. Ironically, it's Taiwan, which is leader or one of the leaders in some of these categories when it comes to semiconductors and chips. And they sell a lot of that to China. So, the cost to China, let's say they've got Taiwan, would be a decimated market, would be an endangered economy at home, and they might find themselves in a real dicey political situation. So I, I would agree that they don't want to pursue a military solution, but now you have Xi creating a situation in China that's resembling Russia, in which he is having unchecked power. He has gotten rid of his rivals. There's very little of the consensus that used to exist in China where the Politburo, the Central Military Commission, had a diverse group of real heavyweights who were able to infuse some, some wisdom. Putin has done it himself. It's, it's ironic that we missed the days of the Politburo in the Soviet Union where the general secretary was the country's leader, but he had to answer to the Politburo, all who included these, these political heavyweights. So you've got these people now who've established cults of personality. In Russia, it's a kleptocracy, where you know what they say goes, and very few others have much influence. So I think there's a danger if she believes he has boxed himself into a corner, which I think is what Putin believes, and has no way out but to have a war to secure um, reunification with Taiwan. And I hope it doesn't come to that. I hope she is a lot smarter uh, than, than Putin is and is willing to hear some alternative points of view and look at the data 
more uh, objectively so that uh, we don't find ourselves in, in a war with China over Taiwan or other regions of the Pacific or whatever else the matter. And, and I think, again, the unclassified uh, assessment, which I encourage your audience to read, it's a good piece of, of intelligence, Finnish intelligence, offers, you know, here's our risk and, and we're, we're hoping that there's different pathways that avoid direct military confrontation. Yeah, um, you know, the you know looking at China and, and sort of uh, you know their economic situation, uh, they're the the largest importer of food and energy uh, in the world. Um, they don't necessarily produce things that the rest of the world needs per se, um, like versus a, a Russia who has a tremendous. Uh, ability to produce energy that people need. Um, so I, I just wonder if China was hit with sanctions that were similar to the sanctions placed on Russia, how that would affect their economy uh, due to their uh, reliance on uh, foreign food and energy. Um, okay, so... So I'll, I'll, I'll give you a quick answer uh, on that. I, I think China's definitely been affected by the war in Ukraine, even though it's increased its trade with Russia. That doesn't sort of balance out what it's losing elsewhere. The impact on the supply chain has had a great impact on, on China uh, because it had such a huge role in the supply chain of so much international manufacturing. The pandemic, uh, political situation, military situation, is leading some producers to find alternatives for those supply chains. That's going to impact China, as well as it's facing a population problem, believe it or not, with 1.4 billion people, it doesn't have enough younger people coming into the, the, the labor market to take up jobs for it to continue to increase its production and increase its, its economic growth. So it's got some issues, which it needs to think about. Uh, is it better off figuring out by working with the West or by confronting the West? Okay, so we're uh, we're short on time here, so I, I'll finish up with this. Um, uh, recently, the uh, I think it was the CIA or or maybe the sort of broader uh, intelligence agencies they put out a report uh, talking about uh, Havana syndrome and how they don't think it was uh, some sort of foreign adversary who was attacking. Um, people from the CIA, State Department, uh, you know, in, in overseas uh, locations. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I wrote a piece for The Hill a couple of weeks ago, in which I expressed some skepticism for that conclusion. I think uh, there's a sentiment, I believe, in, in the U.S. government and the intel community to just move on from this and try to put it behind us. Uh, you know, U.S. Foreign Service officers, CIA officers, civilians, serving the U.S. government overseas, have for years been dealing with you know, harassment, intimidation, pulsed microwave energy at embassies, uh, break-ins to their houses, physical assaults uh, by Russian intel services, Cuban intel services, and the like. So the Russians even used spy dust, which was a carcinogen back in the 80s and 90s, to track uh, suspect U.S. intel officers. Mm -hmm. So... I, I don't put it past the Russians to do something like this. I think that it's kind of hard to do a forensic investigation after the fact when we were not collecting 
on any of this. But at the same time, I would think as as a spy, there'd be some evidence somewhere that something was going on that warrants further investigation. So, you know, I'm a little skeptical. I think that we moved on too quickly. But I do know that the Department of Defense is taking this up. They're going to look at it more from a scientific approach, a scientific perspective to see is there a possibility that this was going on, but sort of masked by other known Russian collection efforts and and hopefully, you know, give us some peace. But I think at the end of the day, we won't know until, as we did with Spy Dust, some Russian FSB or SDR intel officer comes forward and goes, yep, I know about it. I was in the program. Here's the sample. Here's the, here's what was going on and gives us our, our best look. And do you have any um, any thoughts on, on why they may say that, uh, you know, this wasn't uh, – the Russians or, or a sort of hostile uh, intel service? I mean, though, what they're saying is they don't see any evidence of a man-made program that would have achieved these medical consequences. But they also can't explain a lot of the medical consequences that some of my colleagues are suffering from. Those who are suffering from traumatic brain, uh, which, which you get usually from concussions on a battlefield. Or, you know, something physical has happened to you. So I've got friends and colleagues who absolutely had the physical manifestations of these, of these, you know, inflictions, afflictions, but no explanation for a cause. And the coincidence to me of where they served and what they were doing and when they were there is a, is a little compelling to say that, okay, we can't find the science yet to match it up. But since we can't, we're just going to figure, you know, nothing was going on. I, I think that might be a little, um, little too soon. Yeah, I actually know um, at, at least one person, probably two, that uh, strongly believes that they were the victim of a of one of these attacks, and um, and he he felt like it completely changed his life and and career uh, afterwards. And oh yeah, uh, and he was in Russia when it happened. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in sort of following that and, and seeing what, what comes of, of these, uh, you know, potential investigations and, and what they conclude. Um, okay, so, uh, you know, I know you're busy and, and you, you have things to do, and I appreciate you taking out the time to, to come on here and talk to me today. Um, if anyone in the audience is interested in keeping up with you on social media or, you know, getting a copy of your book, uh, where's the best place for them to do that? So I'm on Twitter at Douglas London five, the number five, and I do post things and I post not only what I write, but some other musings now and then my book, the recruiters spying and the lost art of American intelligence is available at most bookstores. Uh, you can get online from, from Amazon, from target, from Barnes and Nobles. Uh, if you want to know what it's really like to be a spy, uh, what real agent operations look like and those relationships, I think it's a good read. Uh, certainly, I try to make it entertaining by telling as many anecdotes as I can that the CIA would allow me. <laughs>